Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Shalom. Good morning, Fifth Company. Where's my boys? Hey. <laughs> Join me to welcome them. <laughs> Thank you, Elder Adrian and the music team. Thank you, uh, Deacon Eric. And um, I am actually thankful you know, for the privilege to be able to share John 8 with you. And uh, I'm actually Daniel Lim. Um, well, the chaplain for the Boys Brigade and Girls Brigade Company is sponsored uh, in ARP, uh, by ARPC. So the best way to follow today's uh, sermon is to open your Bibles, your digital Bibles as well, to John 8, and allow me to pray as we begin. Come, let's pray. Father, your word is a lamb to guide our feet, a light for our path. May the meditation of your word, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give us courage to only speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last Tuesday, you know, in the midst of the holiday season, my family uh, had a vacation, short vacation, you know, to, to JB. You know, it was a very stressful one because I was still preparing my sermon. Yeah. So I, I received this message on the staff chat. Um, and uh, of the passing of uh, the late elder Ng Sui Tiang, which is the mother of our uh, deacon Eric. Um, so it, it was held in their home in jo uh, JB. And so my wife and I decided um, to attend the wake service. So when we arrived, there, there were so many people uh, that packed the house, sending their condolences to the family members, you know, with the casket uh, in the middle of the living room and chairs nicely arranged for service, for the wake service. But if I were to close my eyes and uh, I could hear the elderly choir rehearsing their the favourite songs specially chosen uh, by the deceased and uh, a gathering of her long-time friends from various churches, the laughter, the chatter, the atmosphere felt like Christmas. And at the end of the sermon, the pastor opened the stage, which is very unusual in Singapore, I mean, in, in, in Singapore, to open the stage to anyone who wants to share their eulogy. I, I do not know um, the late elder Ng Sui Tiang personally, but through the eulogy of the different people, I learned so much about her. She was a faithful servant who God, who didn't just know Jesus, but truly believed and followed Jesus to the best of her ability as a mother, as a wife, a teacher, and a leader in the church. So one after another, as they speak, they step forward to share about their personal moments where she ministered to all of them praying with them, giving generously to the building of the church in Sabah, Putrajaya, Kelantan. And even during her last days, despite her, her frail health, she continued to do visits or even pray and encourage people. Their church pastor, a longtime friend, shared that she was serious in everything she did. A no-nonsense kind of person. Serious about her faith, Serious about the way she spent her time. Serious in how she served in ministry. Serious in taking good care of her family, young and old. 
Are we serious about Jesus? Are we serious about our belief and actions that flow from it? Or do we take our faith lightly? The prologue in John 1 gives us a book summary of the key themes which Apostle John wants to emphasize. With the purpose of John 8 was, was fulfilled in the prologue in verses um, seven, uh, chapter 1, 17-18, that states, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So the fundamental question asked throughout the, the whole book of John is, who is the Messiah, the Son of God? John 8 is a dialogue, continuing from um, John 7, which Pastor Sun Kun covered last week. You know. So it talks about, chapter 7 talks about, you know, which is the unbelief of the Jewish leaders. And, and through the dialogue of Jesus and his opponents, we will know who Jesus is and where he comes from and where he is going to. So ARBC has decided not to cover the, the first uh, 12 verses. It's because the portion is added in much later. It's not part of the early manuscripts. And therefore today, uh, my sermon will be focusing on verse 12 to 32 instead. So in John 8, we look at um, Jesus' dialogue with the Jews and focusing on Jesus' claim to deity. Last Sunday, Pastor Sen Kun preached on John 7, which happened during a Jewish major feast called the Festival of the Tabernacles. He has set the stage and understanding of this week's passage. John 8 is at the end, happens at the end of this festival. And so let, let us watch a short video to recap what this festival is all about. It is prophesied when Christ comes again, we will gather at the wedding feast of the Lamb, celebrating the triumph of the Savior over all things. To be taught of this significant event and other teachings, Israel was given the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Understanding this feast not only teaches us of the last days, leading up to the second coming, but also of the Savior's role as the light of the world the living waters, and the King of Kings. Israel was commanded to participate in three major feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Occurring during fixed times at the spring, summer, and fall harvests, these feasts were meant to both remind Israel of past events and teach them of future events. Let's now look more closely at the third feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, which Josephus called the most holy and most eminent of the feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles, which begins five days later. The feast's connection to the final harvest of the year foreshadows the final harvest of souls at the coming of the Messiah. According to the law, Israel was to build booths or temporary shelters to dwell in for seven days, from the 15th through the 21st day. 
These booths, also known as Sukkot in Hebrew, were generally moderate in size with at least three walls and a roof made of branches. This likely was a fun time for children as the families ate and slept in their temporary tabernacle or sukkah, almost like camping in the backyard. The purpose of living in the booth was to remind the people that Israel dwelt in booths after the Lord brought them out of Egypt. It also could remind Israel that the Lord dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, which stood in the center of the camp of Israel. John taught of when the Savior came to earth that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Just as the Lord was with the people as they escaped bondage and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so too is our Savior with us as we seek out shelter from our worldly cares and troubles. He will always dwell with us if we let him as we journey towards our own promised land. On this very day, when Israel was praying for rain, Jesus proclaimed, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By Jesus proclaiming that he was the ultimate source for living water, he was giving a clear and direct declaration of his divinity. On the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, in addition to the water-drawing ceremony, the people gathered at the temple in the court of the women. Young Levite boys climbed up to four massive candelabras, lighting their large bowls filled with oil. This light was so bright that it is said that every courtyard in Jerusalem was lit. It is in this same area of the temple, just days later, that Christ proclaims, I am the light of the world. Just as the light from the candelabras shone over the entire city, so too does the light of Christ shine throughout the world for all to see. Thank you. So here we see a, a scene, chapter 8 is a scene where Jesus is standing in the treasury where the courts of women is, you know, where there's the four candelabras and, and as, this is as far as any woman, Jewish woman can actually allow to go um, when they enter the temple courts. And Jesus is teaching here with the intention uh, for all to hear because it's in between the two different courts. Um, and these are the seven I am statements you know, that we can find uh, in, in, in the book of John. Um, as Jesus proclaims the second statement, which is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was standing in this cause of a woman where the four candelabras were situated. He proclaims to be the light brighter than the four candelabras which was lighted at night during the Feast of Tabernacles, shining out to the darkness, to the whole world. And the, the, these light metaphors are actually very familiar, something that's familiar to the Jews who knows the Old Testament well. And so what is the light? The light is life in John 1, chapter uh, uh, John 1, 4-14, we read in the prologue, 
that John sets the stage, calling Jesus the true light, which gives light, the true light which gives light to everyone. So in the Old Testament, the light of God's presence lead Israel in the wilderness with the pillar of fire by night. And that is light itself. You know, in Exodus 13 to 14, as the Israelites were led by the pillar of fire across the Red Sea, which saved them. Similarly, Jesus says that those who follow him, who follow the light, will have life. And they indeed have life in, by crossing the Red Sea. So the light also represents salvation. Salvation from Isaiah 49, 6, that tells us, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This light has to do with the salvation of all the nations. Third, the light is God's glory. In Psalm 27, 1, that God, our, our Father, shines the light of His glory in the face of Jesus Christ, so that we can walk in the light and not stumble. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So the light is life. The light is salvation. And the light is God's glory. And after knowing what the light represents, we now look at why Jesus used the I am statements. First, I observe that um, Jesus started using the bold statements that are similar to this big word called tetragrammaton. Tetra means four, and gramma means uh, letters. So God's Hebrew name, Yahweh, is originally adapted in four letters, Y-H-W-H, which does not have any vowel. You can't even pronounce it. So these four letters are considered too holy, too holy for anyone to pronounce by by the Jews, and except for the high priest himself. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God, what is your name? God said to Moses, I am who I am, and this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So when God called, calls himself the I am in Exodus 3, it is a pivotal point in redemption history. God reveals Himself to redeem them out of exile and lead them into a new life. Similarly, when Jesus uses the I am statements, Jesus reveals Himself as God, redeeming those who believe in Him out of darkness and leads them into a new life in Christ. So when Jesus uses the word I am five times in John 8 alone, Jesus is moving towards the hour which is He is glorified, which will take place through His death, resurrection, and exaltation. So, as we look at the John 8 outline, you know, I theme it as why so serious. That, you know, when we look at the outline of John 8, we learn more about who Jesus is week by week. Are we serious about Him? We point our fingers at the foolishness of the Pharisees' disbelief. Followers of Jesus must never continue to walk in darkness, but be serious in walking in the light. So those who are in disbelief 
those who are in disbelief will resort to, to methods like reasoning, accusations, and attempts to get rid of Jesus and his followers. So yet, the true disciples of Jesus are those who heard what Jesus said, believe in him, and are serious in walking in the light and trusting in him to show you the way. Point one, if we believe in Jesus, be serious in walking in the light. The hearers are confronted with a decision whether to believe or not to believe. The opposition who is not able to accept Jesus' claim here in this passage challenge with this accusation. So when you see the red colour, the, the, the box that's red, that's the opposition. And the words in Jesus is in a white box. So when he challenges, he says, here you are, appearing as your own weakness. Your testimony is not valid. They are holding Jesus to the standards of the rabbinic teachings. They say that Jesus claimed that I am the light of the world, needs to be testified by two or more. Otherwise, it's considered you know, not valid. Yet, we know that 2 Corinthians 5.7 tells us, for we live by faith and not by sight. These Jews have probably heard and seen many miracles before John 8, you know, performed by Jesus. And how many more miracles must we see or hear to believe who Jesus is? In verses 14, Jesus answered, Even if I testify with my own um, behalf, my testimony is valid. Jesus says that he knows where he comes from and where he is going to. They fail to understand that Jesus is the one who comes from God and he will shortly return back to God. But his opponents fail to understand this. Not just one sent by God, but God, the Son of God himself, who does not need human validation. In verses 15 to 18, the Pharisees judge him by human standards. Jesus didn't judge them. For it is written in John 12, 47, that Jesus did not come to judge or condemn the world, but to save the world. So Jesus here, he reserved his judgment. But if he were to judge, his judgments are right. Hebrews 6.18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. And in verse 16b, Jesus says, my decisions are true. Because John 5 verse 30 tells us, by myself I can do nothing and I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus could be hinting that his opponents is not doing the same. They have already judged Jesus by their disbelief. And their judgment is not true because they seek to please themselves, not God. Since their, their call, the, the law calls for two or more witnesses for every matter to be established, in verses 17 to 18, Jesus testifies for himself with his father as the other witness and there is no other greater to swear by. So in verses 19, 
they question Jesus, where is your father? So when the opponents do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, their disbelief affects their understanding. They will not be able to associate Jesus with God. So the next possible option is to refer that, you know, is they are referring to his earthly father. So when you do not know Jesus, you will never know the father. So Nas Daily came out with this one-minute video about Chinese water torture. I don't know whether if you've seen it before. I'm not going to show you the torture, but you know. So the Chinese method of uh, uh, torture seems very harmless to me. You know, when one is actually tied and placed beneath a dripping tap, slowly, drop by drop of water, allowing the water to be dripped on your forehead. Over a long period of time, can you believe that this constant dripping of water causes the person a lot of pain? What, what can we learn from this? <laughs> no, we don't treat our BB boys like that, you know. Just to let you know. The, 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 every single drop of water may seem like a small problem. Small problem that we face at first. It seems harmless. Just like the disbelieving Jews. But over time, when our disbelief spiral into spiritual cluelessness, our heart will be hardened with disbelief. And, and, and it, we don't even bother to understand it anymore. If you are not walking in the light, means very clearly you are walking in darkness. So treat disbelief seriously. Point two, if we believe in Jesus, be serious in trusting Him. In verses 21, it says, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So once more, Jesus here repeats the same statement to the Pharisees. A similar phrase, phrase found in um, chapter 7, 34, and chapter 8, 14, and now in verse 21. But this time round, it comes with a warning. What is this warning? It says, you will look for me and you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Immediately you know that Jesus is not talking about hide and seek here. So from the beginning of the feast, the Pharisees have been looking for Jesus with an evil intent. Asking around, where is he? In chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus now tells them that after he is gone, they will look for him again, but they will not be able to find him because, he says, where I go, you cannot come. So when Jesus went away, he will return to the Father because they do not believe in Him, they could not follow Him there. And they would die unforgiven in unbelief. This warning is repeated and expanded here in verse 24. As the Jews are filled with disbelief, Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah and continue their wait for the Messiah that they want. They will not find Him and eventually die in their sin. So once you take Jesus away out of this equation, Jesus, the light of the world, out of this equation, you will basically get no life, no salvation, and no glory of God 
shining on you. In verses 24, they even suspect that Jesus will commit suicide, which is a grievous sin in Jewish eyes. With the most ridiculous one, in the ones in uh, verse 41 and verse 48 that says, they calls calling Jesus an illegitimate child, born of parents who are not lawfully married to each other. And verse 48, where they say that Jesus is a Samaritan and demon-possessed. It is a constant attack of his origin and where he comes from. Can you see the darkened mind and darkened heart looks like? In chapter 7 alone, the same group of people had sought to arrest and kill Jesus many times. In 7 verse 1, 25, 32 and 44, their seeking of Jesus is not with the purpose to believe in Him, but to find opportunities to trap and kill Him. Allow me to quote uh, John MacArthur when asked about the hallmarks of a false religion. He replied, All false religion rejects the true Jesus from the Bible. Every early heresy attacks the nature of Jesus and who He is. Can't we see that clearly here? That this is exactly what Apostle John is establishing in this gospel. So that you might believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So be serious in trusting in Jesus. Verse 23 gives us a hint of where He comes from. Jesus said, You are from below, and I am. I am from above, you are of this world, and I am not, I'm not of this world. Jesus defines the big difference of their origin, starting from stating his divinity, that he is not of this world, but sent from God, where the world is associated with sin and self-destruction. Verse 24 once again highlights the same warning in verse 21. Jesus says, I've told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. This is the third time in John 8 alone that Jesus claims to be the Messiah. I am He. That, die, that to die in your sins means that we need to bear the consequences of our own sins. There will be no escape for us. So my son... He, he shared with me stories of things that he have read or watched in YouTube. And there was this story that he, he, uh, he liked a lot of this guy called Yoshi Shiratori. I don't know many of the youths here, do you know him? You know, my son claims that this guy is the greatest um, prison escape artist. You know? So Yoshi is falsely accused of robbery and murder uh, you know, and imprisoned in, in 1936. He successfully escaped prison four times, four different prisons. And every time he escaped, you know, they, he was arrested shortly and moved to a higher security prison. So he, every time up level, you know. So finally, he managed to escape Sapporo prison by digging his way out using a miso soup bowl. Yeah. Which he eventually turned himself in. I don't know why he wanted to turn himself in and complete his sentence, he probably realized that in the end, there's no joy in running away. 
He, he completed his sentence in 1961. We can try, the lesson that we learned is that we can try all sorts of methods to break free from prison, like Mr. Yoshi. But Jesus can help us break free from the prison of sin, which nobody can. So be serious in trusting in Jesus. In verses 25, the Jews ask Jesus once more, Who are you? Or some commentators actually translate this as, Who do you think you are? It is in that offensive tone, and how do I know? You know, there's no emoticon in my Bible, you know. So, uh, so we can tell strictly from Jesus' response. The Jews know very well that the people are talking about Jesus being the prophet and the Messiah, but they reject these ideas. Jesus had publicly declared that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man in um, chapter 5, verse 27, and he is the one sent by God in chapter 5, verse 23 to 30. So our youth here would probably even summarize Jesus' long reply in one word. As you can see the reply here, I bow it in red. He's, he will summarize all these in one word, which is seriously. So Jesus' refusal to answer this question seems appropriate, given the offensive way with the, which the Jews address him. So in, in verses 26, Jesus even brought in a theme of judgment as a response to the unbelief of the Jews. Jesus, the light of the world, was sent to the world to expose our sins, declaring the reliable words of what he heard from the Father. He comes to offer us salvation and eternal life to the world. But when our hearts are filled with disbelief, we will fail to understand what Jesus is telling us about his Father and about who he is. Verses 28 says, when we have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what my Father has taught me. So the body of Jesus was lifted up, referring to His death on the cross. The phrase lifted up reminds us of the bronze snake in Numbers 21, where the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it out on the pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and lifted it up on the pole. And when anyone is bitten by a snake and look up at the bronze snake, they lift. So only those who believe in the word of God and follow, they will receive what is promised by God. In this case, is to believe and look at the snake. In verses 28b, Jesus identify that these people whom he's speaking to, they are the ones who would lift him up to the cross. They are responsible for his crucifixion. And only after crucifying Jesus, they will realize that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God. And they will finally know that his claims are true. Verse 29 tells us that his father who sent him is with him as Jesus does what pleases him, even till death on the cross. Going through the most extreme form of Roman torture meant for the worst of criminals. 
What a comfort to the followers of Jesus that, G- that God is with us through it all, even as we do His will. So be serious in trusting in Jesus. So we have two groups of people here, those who believe and, and heard and believe in verse 30, and those who rejected Jesus. Their discovery of who Jesus is will also lead to two different responses as well. For those who believe will be joyfully leading to their salvation, but the unbelief will lead to despair and destruction. So do not wait until the final moments, then you'll be too late. So what is a hallmark of a true disciple of Jesus? Jesus says, if you hold on to my teaching, in verse 31, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are called to remain in Jesus' word, which is the truth. And this is by our obedience to his word, trusting in what we hear and read from the scriptures, praying about and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal things that we cannot understand. Knowing the truth gives us that freedom, the freedom to choose to do what is right, to glorify God. The freedom, this freedom is a freedom from sin, a freedom from condemnation, freedom from darkness, and freedom from the clutches of the evil one. And finally, freedom from death. When I was 14 years old, we all think, you know, when we are 14, we are formidable. You know, we can do all things, jump everywhere. You know, so I got in, involved in, um, in gangs, fights, and substance abuse, extortion. But things changed one day when, when I was 15. When I attended the funeral of my fellow uh, BB Boys Brigade batchmate, who passed on at 15 due to leukemia. As I stare at his lifeless body, dressed in the full uniform of the Boys Brigade, I saw myself in the casket. Staring at death face to face, the first question I asked, is where is he going? Where is he going? How can he know the way? The same question Thomas asked our Lord Jesus in John 14, 5, 7. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. For now on, you do know him and have seen him. So brothers and sisters, when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Free from the imprisonment of lies, darkness, rebellion. Free from death if you know where you're going, to whom that you are going to. Jesus has brought the truth into this world. Proclaiming it, living it out, Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is the only way to the Father 
So when you follow Him, you will have the light of life. You will know the way, the truth, and the life everlasting. To, sorry, to know the way, the truth, and the life everlasting is to know and believe in Jesus. Then the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with you for a moment. So after days of, of weeks like us, you know, who study the Gospel of John, are we certain of who Jesus is? Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who brings us eternal life? If you believe in Jesus, are you serious in the way you live your life as a Christian? Are you serious in your ministry that, that includes serving your family, your in-laws, your parents, serving the church, local missions, overseas missions? If you're serious, you know, can, do you actually even hear the ground? Hear the cries of the ground, the, the, the different ministries calling out for help? Uh, you know, and the list goes on. Would you even prioritize serving the Lord and giving for His work? If Jesus is your treasure, do you put your money where your treasure is? These are my reflections when I heard the eulogies last Tuesday. Deacon Eric's mother's wake was one of the most, to me, was one of the most God-edifying wakes I've ever attended. With many different groups of people coming forward to testify about the good work that she has quietly done all her life, revealing how serious the late Elder Ng views her belief in Jesus and outflow from her are acts of love that glorify God. As the family grieved the loss of their mother and grandmother, they are also certain of her salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Her last words to her family were a request for all who surround her at her deathbed to smile because it is how she would like to remember them before she meets her Maker. So brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus is coming and He's coming soon. So be serious about our faith. Allow me to pray. Father, by, our, by your grace, those who believe in Jesus will receive the light of life. By your strength, those who live their life of sin and never walk again in darkness. By your wisdom, we would understand your word and be anchored, sure and steadfast, to Christ, our rock and our salvation. For those who struggle to believe in Jesus, we ask that you speak life into their hearts and move them towards you. Help us hold on to your truth so that we will be serious in our belief and in doing ministry. Lord, we also ask for your peace and comfort to be on Deacon Eric and his family assuring them with the grace and salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.